From Liangjiahe, a village on the barren lowest plateau in northwest China, to Zhongnanhai, the center of China's top leadership in Beijing. Xi Jinping has served in various posts at different levels of the government across China, starting in his early years as a junior village official to governing as China's top leader. What's he like as an individual and as a leader? How have his work experiences from earlier decades been influencing his leadership as the national leader? What are some of the core principles that have guided his decisions and actions? I consider myself a relatively hard-working person. I know very well that people's biggest concerns are education, employment, income. We can't pursue development through destructive methods, depleting the legacies from our ancestors while exhausting the options for our future generations. The Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series shares the life and work experiences of Xi Jinping and explores the formation of his governing principles, philosophy, beliefs, among others. Getting to know Xi's thoughts on national governance and how his leadership took shape may help you better understand China's path, governance and principles. You can follow the Stories of Xi Jinping podcast series on all major podcast platforms. Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour, one hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host, Sui, with you on this Tuesday, August 15th, 2023. You're listening to the Beijing Hour, coming to you live from the Chinese capital. On today's program, China marks its first ecology day. Argentina devalues its currency following the presidential primaries. Casualties from the Hawaii wildfires are expected to rise further. In business, China's retail sales maintain stable growth. In sports, Al Hila agrees to deal with PSG for Neymar. In culture and entertainment, China's summer box office revenue surpasses 16.5 billion yuan. Now today's top stories: China is marking its first National Ecology Day on Tuesday. President Xi Jinping is calling on the whole society to protect the ecological environment together. He urged efforts to balance high-quality development and high-level protection, and accelerate the building of a beautiful China. Xi Jinping initiated the idea of Lucy Waters and Lush Mountains are valuable assets during an inspection tour in the eastern province on August 15, 2005, when he served as secretary of the CPC's Zhejiang Provincial Committee. The concept is also the theme of this year's Ecology Day. Gaowang has more. The themes lucid waters and lush mountains are valuable assets, and according to President Xi's important instructions, we should focus on promoting high-quality development and high-level protection simultaneously. Continue to promote green and low-carbon transformation of production methods and lifestyles, and advance the modernization featuring human-nature harmonious coexistence. And we also we also should comprehensively strengthen the construction of a beautiful China. So Chinese Vice Premier Ding Xuexiang also stressed promoting the diversity and also、uh, stability of the ecosystem and vigorously developing new energy and clean energy, as well as accelerating the green and low carbon transformation of the development model. So China has established the world's largest carbon trading market and has significantly reduced carbon emissions intensity. The country's new energy vehicle production and sales have remained first globally for eight consecutive years, and the total installed capacity of renewable Renewable energy power generation has exceeded 1.3 billion kilowatts, with wind power and photovoltaic installations ranking first around the world. That was Gaowang on China's efforts to protect the ecological environment. Data from the National Forestry and Grassland Administration shows that forest coverage rate in China has reached 24 percent and contributed a quarter of the world's newly forested land. China also ranks the first in the world concerning the artificial afforestation areas. The country has also become more biodiverse, with the number of protected species, including giant pandas, gibbons, and Siberian tigers, continuing to grow. Deputy Head Yang Zhisong of the Sichuan Academy of Giant Pandas says this reflects the overall improvement of the ecosystem. You protect this giant pandas. 
By protecting giant pandas, more than 8,000 other wild animal and plant species where pandas live and the whole ecosystem have also been protected. Giant pandas have played well its role as a flagship and umbrella species. China has the largest area of grassland in the world with more than 260 million hectares. The area of wetland in the country is 56 million hectares, ranking fourth globally. A county in eastern China known for its production of limestones is taking steps to make the industry more ecologically friendly. Yang Shanshan went there to find out how locals near the mining site is restoring ecology. Changshan County is located at one of the sources of the Tiantang River. Many years ago, the area was known as China's limestone capital because the rock was widely in several industries, including construction. This area used to have lots of limestone mines, and the limestone production in Changshan County contributed to 10% of the local economy, amounting nearly 130 million US dollars in 2013. However, the limestone production also caused the serious air and water pollution and geological hazards. After years of efforts, those limestone mines were eventually closed, and some of them turned into beautiful parks. The limestone mines indeed were very important for us, but when they thrived, it was quite muddy and dusty here. Also, it's very close to the Qiantan River. We finally decided to abandon this old economic development path. We closed 16 calcium manufacturing factories, 165 limestone mines, and 201 production lines. Next, the job was to restore the environment. Forests were replanted and river trails were also cleared. Fertilizer, the village sewage water and industrial parks along the riverbanks polluted the water. We have invested billions of RMB to clear the riverbanks, set up sewage treatment and closing factories. After years of efforts, this river is clean and meets the first-class drinking water standard. Villagers nearby also recognize that ecological protection also helps to improve their own lives. The water projects have reduced lots of flooding in this village. Also, when the ecosystem was restored, the beautiful scenery attracted many tourists and increased the villagers' income. But how could the residents of Changshan, who relied on the limestone industry for employment, find new jobs? We finally had to upgrade our industry after closing the limestone mines. We introduced some new and high-technology industries which would not pollute the environment. This is how the residents find new job opportunities. Changshan, once a old dusty and a dirty limestone capital, has finally been transformed into a place with rolling green hills and clear water. Its transformation is also helping raise awareness about the importance of ecological protection and the work done to restore one of the sources of the Qiantang River. That was Yang Shanshan reporting. Research results show that a tallest tree in Asia is estimated to be about 1,500 years old. The giant cypress, measuring over 100 meters, was discovered at the National Nature Reserve of the Yalu Zambo Grand Canyon in Xizang. A small number of naturally dead and fallen giant trees were also found around the high tree. Associate Professor Wang Zi at Fujian Agriculture and Forestry University says the trees serve as an important carrier for determining their ages. To estimate the tree age, we measure the tree rings to make calculations. That is, we measure the pattern of tree rings of several dead trees in the sample area. According to a previous survey, there are about 50 rings in 10 centimeters. Scientists extracted tree rings from the fallen trees and determined the corresponding age based on the ratio of their girth to the number of tree rings. The tree has been listed as a national first-class protected plant. Coming up, Argentina devalues its currency following the presidential primaries. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour brings you an hour of comprehensive news and information from both China, China, and the rest of the world. Rest of the world. A mix of news, sports, and entertainment. In-depth analysis of the day's big stories, as well as the most comprehensive business of the day. The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour. Your very own window to China and the rest of the world.
It's eight minutes past the hour. Argentina's devalue its currency following the presidential primaries. Far-right candidate Javier Milei won the most votes, which analysts say will add to the Latin American country's economic and political instability. Joe Richards has the, this report from Buenos Aires. A historic political shift in Argentina. Far-right libertarian Javier Milei took around 30% of the vote in Sunday's presidential primaries. This turns October's election into a tight three-way race. Not only have we won individually, but we were also the most voted party because we are the true opposition. We're the only ones who want a real change. He has been compared to Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro. Millet has captured votes on a promise to overhaul politics in Argentina with radical reform. To end the country's triple-digit inflation, he promises to dollarize the economy. He also wants to legalize handgun ownership and says climate change is a lie. I don't think that people voted him out of uh, policy proposals, perhaps with the exception of dollarization, which could be seen as an easy and quick fix to inflation, hard to put in practice in my opinion. But I think that it was much more what I would call a punk vote, a rebel vote against status quo. Rather, it's not about policy, but rebel, rebellion about, uh, against status quo. At the headquarters for the Conservative Alliance Together for Change, activists greeted candidate Patricia Burrich, chanting Presidente. We have the opportunity to lead a profound change for Argentina, she said. Bullrich, the former security minister in Argentina, had hoped for a stronger showing in these primaries, but her coalition still finished in second place. The government candidate, economy minister Sergio Massa, also formed a coalition that finished third overall. Yet the political and economic outlook in Latin America's third largest economy has been transformed by Millet's success. The results of the presidential primaries have had an immediate impact on Argentina's economy. On Monday morning, the central bank announced a devaluation of the peso of around 20%. That devaluation is now expected to accelerate the country's 116% inflation rate, with Sunday's primary results creating even greater economic and political uncertainty in the run-up to the October the 22nd election. That was Joe Richards reporting on the aftermath of Argentina's primary election. Niger's military junta says would prosecute ousted President Mohamed Bazoum for high treason and undermining the security of the country. West Africa's regional bloc ECOWAS says the move is another form of provocation. It also says it contradicts the junta's reported willingness to resolve the crisis peacefully. The United Nations also says the attempt is very worrying and called for the immediate release of the democratically elected president. The African country is divided over the junta's attempt to seize power. Gary Amato has more from Niamey. We have two, two situations that are very different. If you take the case of the capital Niamey, as I told you, uh, the capital Niamey is a stronghold of a political opposition. So the main support that the junta have uh, um, is located in the capital. Niger have nine regions, so the eight other regions, we cannot say that the situation is the same. They have some supporters, but it is not the same as in the capital. So uh, uh, we have people who, uh, who, who want, uh, I mean, the junta to continue, and we have in another part people who want, uh, I mean, the president Bazoum to be back and uh, uh, to continue ruling the, the country till uh, tw- uh, 2026, the date that is struggled for uh, the new election, the presidential election. So we have the two situations, and those who are in the capital agree with the fact that uh, one day uh, the, maybe the, pre- the President Bazoum will be judged. Uh, so, and in the other part, those who support President Bazoum, they do not agree with uh, this, uh, I mean, uh, this statement by, uh, by, by the journalist saying that uh, it will have a kind of trial against uh, uh, the President Bazoum uh, so that he, let's say, he threatened the country. That was Gary Amado reporting. UN spokesperson Stefan Dujarek says an attempt by the military junta of Niger to bring charges of high treason against ousted President Mohamed Bazoum is very worrying. We remain extremely concerned about uh, the state of being, uh, the health and safety of, uh, of the president and his family. And again, we call for his immediate and unconditional release and his reinstatement as head of state, of course. 
NAS that the UN persists in delivering aid to Niger, even though there are challenges such as the rainy season. About 4.3 million individuals in the country depend on humanitarian assistance. Austria and Switzerland have expressed their intention to join Europe's air defense initiative, known as Sky Shield. Critics say the move brings the two traditionally neutral countries too close to NATO. Jones Plechberger reports from air defense drill in Austria. Aiming a 45 millimeter gun at an airborne target. Air defense exercises have increased in Austria since the beginning of the war in Ukraine. Senior military figures say the country is in desperate need of weapons. We only have the capability to have short-range air defense, and what we are missing is the medium and long-range air defense. And what we are hoping now is, with SkyShield, that we can close this gap within Austria. Through SkyShield, member countries want to coordinate the collective purchase of air defense systems and, most importantly, share radar information of the location and direction of hostile missiles. Switzerland and Austria, however, plan to join a light version of the program, where the decision on the military response remains in Bern and Vienna. Despite the limited membership, many Austrians fear SkyShield will compromise the country's long-held neutrality. Opinion polls show around half the population approves of the scheme. I think it's always good to work together and not to think as alone. For Austria, it's maybe better to have a defense, so it's quite okay. But if you are neutral and offensive, it's quite uh, questionable. I think that everyone should just sort their sort themselves out and not look for other people to drag into their stuff. We shouldn't be thinking about uh, arms and like you know gearing up. Austria's far-right Freedom Party is calling for a referendum to stop the country joining the defense initiative, but the commander of Austria's air force says if neutral Switzerland can sign up to SkyShield, then so can Austria. We are not joining an alliance. This is an initiative launched by Germany, a nation-state, which has invited us to participate in this air defense procurement process. Apart from Austria and Switzerland, all other 17 participating countries are NATO members or applicants. A number of experts in Austria say joining SkyShield will not compromise neutrality. The Russian Academy of Sciences in Moscow disagrees, claiming that by joining the scheme, Vienna and Bern will be compelled to follow the West's common defense policy or face possible U.S. and EU sanctions. Austria's government says it will invite military personnel to share all necessary information with opposition leaders in an attempt to convince the wider political spectrum and the wider public. That was Johannes Plechberger reporting. A state grand jury in Georgia has indicted Donald Trump for his alleged efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election results in the state. This is the fourth criminal case to be brought against the former U.S. president. The indictment listed 19 defendants and 41 criminal counts in total. Part of the case centers around a phone call in which Trump urged the Georgia Secretary of State to find enough votes to overturn election results in his own favor. South Africa is hosting the BRICS summit next week. China and South Africa are marking 25 years of their diplomatic relations this year. Zhao Yang spoke with South African ambassador to China, Dr. Siabonga Sipring Sweli, about bilateral ties and expectations for the BRICS summit. What do you think of the progress that's been made? And then also looking forward, what do you expect for ties? 25 years ago, the trade between our two nations was 1.4 billion US dollars. 25 years later, it's 56.7 billion US dollars. That's a massive increase in terms of bilateral trade between the two countries. We've got a large number of uh, big South African corporations who are investing in this economy in China. They range from petrochemicals, from the banking system and the financial. So now we're seeing even more cooperation on the health sector. The private companies who are dealing with the health sector, they are cooperating with Chinese. More than 180 big Chinese companies were investing in South Africa heavily from different sectors, like I said, from banks, from manufacturing, from mining and uh, technology and so on. The relationship has been beneficial because 
when the economy grows, it means there's direct benefits to our people, get employed, get incomes and so on. We can foresee that this relationship is going to go from strength to strength. But South Africa has a very important role ahead, and that is to host the uh, BRICS Summit. Mr. Ambassador, what is South Africa's vision for BRICS and also for its role in the organization? Let's look at key things which uh, we can do as developing countries. Uh, when you say partnership, I like to stress BRICS is a partnership. It's not a block. We're not competing with any other blocks. We're a partnership for development. Well, partnership for inclusive multilateralism. The first thing that we uh, agreed with our BRICS partners for this year's theme, that let's prioritize uh, what you call just energy transition. We're developing countries, we're still using quite a lot of fossil fuels, but we're quickly transforming this by adding renewable energies. But how do we do that in a manner that doesn't compromise your own people? and transform their skills so they can adapt to new technologies. We are sharing those skills. We are saying we must uh, help the world to recover from the pandemic. We are saying let's talk peace <laughs> and multilateralism. Let's reform the UN's global governance system, including UN, to be inclusive and uh, even pushing uh, the issue of where the role of women, particularly in peace processes. Uh, we believe if we can involve more women in peace processes, our peace processes will be more stable than the current system. That was South Africa's ambassador to China on the role of the BRICS to promote peace, multilateralism, and gender equality. You are listening to the Beijing Hour coming up. Casualties from the Hawaii wildfires are expected to rise further. Would you like to receive the latest news updates about China and the rest of the globe? Tune in to the Beijing Hour every weekday for the latest in politics, business, sports and entertainment from a Chinese perspective. Subscribe to the Beijing Hour for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. It's 21 minutes past the hour. Searchers and rescuers in Hawaii's Maui Island expect a number of casualties from wildfires to rise dramatically as they dig through the ashes. At least 99 people are confirmed dead. Locals are criticizing authorities' response. They say there were no warnings but a lack of communication. Nita Sode Perez spoke with survivors struggling to come to terms with what they've lost. I'd say it's going to take years to rebuilt and to come back to. Pila Taufa was born and raised in the historic town of Lahaina, the former empire of the Hawaiian kingdom, a kingdom reduced to ruins and tales of horror. Just seeing dead bodies on the, oh, dead bodies on the rocks on the beach, bodies on the, in the car. There was a kid underneath a, a car on Front Street. Looked like his dad was trying to protect him, but they just was burnt. Pets, cats, dogs, just all burnt right in the middle of the road. And then before the fire even got to this side, there were people running towards our house. Like their hair looked like it just got burned, their faces all black. The wildfires of Lahaina left a plume of death. The Lahaina blaze became the deadliest in modern American history. Dozens died, and so many others are missing. Pila lost part of his family. I got an auntie and an uncle. A family of four, their daughter and their grandson, seven years old. They were caught in the fire down there. They were trying to get away, but a telephone. They were in the car. I guess the telephone just fell in their car, and they couldn't. They just stuck inside. They got burned. He survived. Yeah. I like so many others wonder why there were no fire alerts or warnings from authorities. Officials have restricted access to Lahaina, while rescue teams continue to search for fire victims. We were finally able to enter the town of Lahaina, where we're witnessing its utter devastation, and residents keep saying that it will take years before they can fully rebuild. It's our home. We've lived here 30 years. Our kids were born here. We just don't know the next steps. It was this family's first time back after running away from the flames in their cars. It's like a bomb went off. It's, it's the end of, every, of all of it. 
it's gone. It's, it's gone. It's so weird. It's hard to think as for the future. We're just camping it out of here, like, just waiting for them to give us the okay to go back in and help clean up, you know, just do whatever we can. After losing almost everything, they dream of a rebirth from the ashes. That was Nisa Soda Perez on Maui Island. Psychologists say many of the survivors of the devastating wildfires in Maui will need long-term mental health care to deal with the trauma they have experienced. Crisis care counselor Donna Lucio is joining a team of mental health professionals, offering assistance to those affected by the fires on the Hawaiian island. Those receiving the mental health care include people who lost loved ones or homes, or the first responders were having a difficult time coping what they have witnessed. Lucio says the amount of emotional distress she's witnessing is unprecedented, with many survivors still in shock and distressed. So my job primarily is to work with those individuals to provide them the safe space to be able to process some of the trauma that they've experienced. And with that, I'm just uh, holding a, a safe space and allowing them to cry, just being present for them and providing some trauma-informed care, as well as just listening to them, because sometimes they just need to process. Immediate therapy support, such as breathing exercises, is underway to help the fire victims cope with potential anxiety, nightmares, and panics. But Lucio says most of them will need continuing mental health care in the long run. Long-term care is going to be necessary for all ages, for everyone who's involved, not just the ones who have lost stuff, but the individuals in the community who have lost friends, the people who are providing care, the individuals who are responding to this, everybody that's involved with this. She asks she will allow the victims to talk as much as they can rather than talk to them by herself to avoid further upset. A group of Irani indigenous people in Ecuador have gathered in the capital Quito to promote a yes vote in the upcoming referendum on not extracting oil in the country's Yasuni National Park. We ask all Ecuadorian citizens to say yes to Yasuni because it's our reserve, our life, where our peoples are. Those who are in isolation need to be free, protected, and guaranteed those rights. Today in Ecuador, we have a historic opportunity this August 20th. Internationally, Ecuador is being talked about as an environmental leader that we are, that we have created, that we are on this path towards a historic milestone where for the first time in a popular consultation, a country is going to decide on a place as important as Yasuni. Ecuadorian people will vote in the referendum to decide whether to leave oil underground or extract in Inasuni on August 20th, the same date as the presidential elections. Many people worry that Ecuador may miss out on economic gains if it bans the extraction, as oil income has long been one of the country's major drivers of economic growth. A group of environmentalists plan to follow the footsteps of Charles Darwin by undertaking a two-year journey across four continents to study endemic wildlife and boost conservation. The group will set sail on board a schooner from Plymouth, England, where Darwin's own expedition began in 1831 and led him to develop the theory of evolution by natural selection. The expedition hopes to anchor in 32 ports, including all the major ports visited by Darwin. The destinations include the Galapagos Archipelago, where Darwin's observations relating bird species differ from island to island help inspire his seminal book on evolution and the origin of species. The researchers will study the impacts of climate change on coral reefs and shrinking wildlife habitats. They will also plant thousands of trees to help mitigate problems such as land desertification. A NASA report shows that last month was the hottest in the global temperature record since 1880. The analysis released by NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Study says July this year over 2.2 degrees Celsius warmer than any other July. NASA says high sea surface temperatures contributed to the record warmth. This analysis shows especially warm ocean temperatures in the eastern tropical Pacific. Let's check the weather. Beijing is 24 overnight. Tomorrow will be cloudy with a high of 34. Chongqing is 29 this evening. Tomorrow sunny and 37. Lhasa is 13 overnight. Tomorrow cloudy and 24. Hong Kong is 28 tonight. It'll see showers tomorrow and 33. 
Elsewhere, Tokyo is 26 overnight, light rain and 32 on Wednesday. Islamabad is 25 tonight, light rain and 35 tomorrow. Bangkok is 26 overnight, then slight rain and 34 on Wednesday. In Africa, Nairobi will have slight rain with a high of 24. Finally, to Oceania, Sydney is 10 this evening. Tomorrow, light rain with a high of 15. It's time for a short break. So far this hour, China marks its first Ecology Day. Argentina devalues currency following the presidential primaries. So we with you stay with us here on the Beijing Hour. Experience the musical classics of the East. Mingle with the masters of Chinese music. My this beautiful beauty. Because the Mongol people are called the Mongols. Music talks. Witness the sound of antiquity and modernity. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. We then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures, and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common: we have hope for humanity and the world. German railway company Deutsche Bahn, the 26th United Nations climate. Hear the difference with CGTN Radio. Join our global network to connect with the world. CGTN Radio. Hear the difference. I love you. 我爱你 This might be the easiest way to say I love you, since there are so many other romantic expressions. No matter if you are a rookie, 你好，我的中文一点点 Or a sophisticated learner, 我来北京五年了，我是本地人 There is definitely something that will interest you. Check out Takeaway Chinese, a world that starts with 你好 Examining the events that impact and shape China and the rest of the world. This is the Beijing Hour. One hour of news and information brought to you every weekday. Now here's your host. Sui with you on this Tuesday. Still to come in business, China's retail sales maintain stable growth. In sports, Alhila agrees to deal with PSG for Neymar. In culture and entertainment, China's summer box office revenue surpasses 16 billion yuan. To contact us, you can email audionewsroom at cgtn dot com or follow our X, formerly Twitter account, CGTN Radio. But first, today's headlines. Here is Tian Yu. Thank you, Su Yi. Chinese President Xi Jinping is calling on the whole society to share the idea of lucid waters and lush mountains are invaluable assets. He called for efforts to balance high-quality development and high-level protection as China marks its first National Ecology Day on Tuesday. The occasion seeks to emphasize the importance of improving publicity and education on ecological civilization. China has marked more than three million square kilometers of key ecological protection areas in an effort to conserve natural resources and habitats. Locals in Maui are waiting in long lines of traffic for permits that grant them temporary access to driving to Lahaina and other areas of the Hawaiian island scorched by the, by the recent wildfires. Among them is Jerry Kalipo from Lahaina, Lahaina, who has been living out of his car with his family since they lost their home in the fire last week.、Uh, very important because you know we got to get back to Lahaina. That's where we're from and born and raised. You know what I mean? And Just gotta get back to work so I can support my family, you know. And just losing our house, our car. I got a rental car right here, but I can't have it for the, you know, for a long period. I won't have to give this back in 24 days, and I, I don't got nothing left. It's been nearly a week after the fire leveled most of the historic resort town, but many residents are still unable to return to the site of the fire due to the risks posed by possible hotspots and toxic fumes. The blaze in Maui has so far killed more than 90 people. Officials have cautioned that the identification of victims will be grim and difficult, as metal structures have melted amid the heat of the intense fire. UN spokesperson Stefan Dujaric says an attempt by the military junta of Niger to bring charges of high treason against ousted President Mohamed Bazoum is very worrying. We remain extremely concerned about 
the state of being, uh, the health and safety of, uh, of the president and his family. And again, we call for his immediate and unconditional release and his reinstatement as head of state, of course. The Economic Community of West African States also says it's shocked to learn of, t- of attempts by the junta to put Bazoum on trial on charges of high treason. It says the move is a form of provocation by coup leaders and contradicts their reported willingness to find a peaceful solution to the current crisis. The lower house of Ethiopia's parliament has ratified a six-month state of emergency rule. An airstrike killed at least 26 people in the embattled Amhara region as deadly clashes continue. A local hospital official said a market was running in Finoti Salam when the airstrike took place. He said they have received more than 55 injured victims. The strike was the most severe since the clashes between members of the Ethiopian army and a local militia known as Fano erupted across Amhara. The Pakistani ambassador to China has strongly condemned the attack on the weekend that targeted a convoy carrying Chinese citizens near the port of Gwada. Moin Ahak highlighted collaborative efforts from both sides to prevent terrorism. Pakistan and China are very closely cooperating on the issue of terrorism and we are both victim of terrorism and extremism. We have lost uh, so many precious lives of our nationals in these in these terrorist attacks, so we feel the pain of each other, and that's why there is a strong cooperation. I also understand that there have been certain attacks in the past uh, on, on, on our Chinese friends in Pakistan. We, we really condemn all these attacks. The convoy was en route to the port of Gwada when it suffered an attack by a roadside bomb and gunfire. All Chinese citizens remained safe without being injured. New Zealand has removed the last of its remaining COVID-19 public health requirements. People are no longer required to wear masks in hospitals and other healthcare facilities. Those who catch COVID will also no longer be required to isolate for seven days. Prime Minister Chris Hipkins says it's a formal end to what he calls a uniquely challenging time. I do want to say there were times during the peak of our COVID response when I longed for this particular day. The weight of the enormous decisions that we took sat heavily. I have to confess, as announcing as I'm announcing this today, that it seems a bit of an anticlimax. Reported COVID cases in New Zealand have hit their lowest levels since February last year. The country's approach to the pandemic has moved from an emergency response to sustainable long-term management. Thanks for the update. That was Tian Yu. This is Sui in the Chinese capital coming up in business. China's retail sales remain stable growth. Ever wondered what's actually going on in Africa through the perspective of an African? How are things really going between China and Africa? What's the narrative of this relationship? Well, get a perspective with China-Africa talk. Hear from African diplomats, entrepreneurs, academics, Chinese natives, and more. Get an hour wavelength every week to find out what's real with China Africa Talk. Find us on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, and more. We'll see you there. 37 minutes past the hour. Stock markets on the Chinese mainland closed lower on Tuesday. Timothy Pope has more. The Shanghai Composite Index traded flat nearly all day. Uh, The benchmark index closed uh, only fractionally lower. Uh, The Shenzhen component, though, sank by about seven-tenths of one percent. Losses were limited by signs of policy action from the Chinese central bank uh, after the release of more data. Of course, we had uh, retail sales, industrial production and fixed asset investment, uh, none of which was all that impressive. Uh, The PBOC's move to cut some key lending rates, though, was welcomed by the markets, even though it came as something of a surprise, uh, being uh, the second such cut in about three months. Uh, It also sent the Chinese yuan to a nine-month low against the US dollar. But we saw financial sector stocks definitely uh, the best performers in Shanghai, keeping a floor under the markets, uh, where many sectors were still in decline, of course. uh, China's biggest lender, ICBC, rose by 1.8%. Tech shares were among the biggest drags on the market, though. Uh, The Chinese semiconductor firms were hit by some heavy selling. We saw Will Semiconductor falling by uh, 7.8%, and GigaDevice uh, sank by 3.4%. That was Mark and Alice, Timothy Pope in Shanghai. In Hong Kong, the Hansen Index dropped around 1%. In Japan, the Nikkei surged around 0.6%. 
China's retail sales of consumer goods maintained stable growth in July, with an increase of 2.5 percent year-on-year to over 3.6 trillion yuan, or around 512 billion U.S. dollars. Spokesman Fu Linghui for the National Bureau of Statistics says the consumer market continued to recover. In the next stage, we will take stronger steps in implementing our macro policies and expanding domestic demand, and strive to boost confidence and prevent risks, so as to promote the continuous improvement in economic operations. In July, the catering sector reported a revenue increase of 15.8 percent from a year earlier. In the first seven months, online retail sales gained 12.5 percent, and service sales surged over 20 percent. China's service production index went up 5.7 percent year-on-year in July. The sub-index for accommodation and catering surged by 20 percent. Software and IT services climbed 11.2 percent, while financial services expanded 7.6 percent. In the first seven months, the index increased by 8.3 percent year-on-year. China's fixed asset investment went up 3.4 percent in the first seven months of this year. The total investment stood at around 4 trillion U.S. dollars in this period. Investment in infrastructure construction increased 6.8 percent from the same period last year, and manufacturing investment rose 5.7 percent. Capital flowing into property development fell 8.5 percent. High-tech industries saw strong growth, with investment up 11.5 percent. So, for more on China's economic data in July, Lily Liu spoke with Zhang Gong, vice president of research and strategy department at University of International Business and Economics in Israel. Zhang,、uh, how do you interpret the economic figures from July? I would interpret this、uh, being as、uh, more on the weak side. I think、um, you know overall, if you look at the、uh, the service sector index, look at the industrial production index. You know, my rough、uh, back of the envelope calculation shows、uh, a little bit less than five percent.、Uh, so, you know, we need to put this into context. What it means is that it's a little bit below the average monthly、uh, growth rate that's needed to maintain the、uh, overall yearly target. That's around five percent, just a little bit.、Uh, but let me put it this way: I think、um, you know we're starting to see signs of.、Uh, Things coming up,、uh, things coming back, starting from June,、uh, and I think July is still sort of on this momentum of coming back from a, a very weak、uh, second quarter. So, John,、uh, we, we're looking at let's say a mixed bag of data. Some are, are positive, some are more on, on the downside. And then, with so much policy support and new measures being rolled out by the governments on different levels to boost consumption, to support real economy and private sectors, what is your outlook for the second half of the year? I think the weak side is really residing with the,、uh, the investment side. Real estate, we know it's not doing well. There's a very significant drop. I think it's close to 10% drop in the real estate sector, and that's a very large sector out of total GDP.、Um, uh, Company-wise,、uh, foreign companies,、um, uh, you know, investment is very weak in my view. It's a little bit over one percent. That's a very weak number. Um, so, so I think overall, you know, the the cure to this economy, in my view, resides with the investment side, particularly、um, foreign direct investment you know, by foreign companies,、uh, as well as by the private sector.、Uh, and we also need to、uh, do something with respect to the real estate sector. I mean, it's not doing well, and we can't afford、uh, just watching this further downslide us the the, the hill,、um, and that's going to represent a huge problem.、Uh, so I think these are the two areas, in my view. That needs some good government help. That was John Gong on China's economic data in July. China has unveiled a three-year action plan to strengthen the country's county-level commerce system. The plan includes over 20 specific tasks, such as new construction or upgrading of logistics distribution centers. The plan also includes the creation of 500 front-runner counties by 2025. Which will have convenience stores for rural populations and rural commerce centers, such as large and medium-sized supermarkets and farm produce markets. AI is a rapidly developing technology with potential to revolutionize industries. However, it also raises concerns for safety, security, and ethics. China has taken steps to address these concerns by rolling out regulations for generative AI. Dai Kai spoke with some industrial experts on the regulations, as well as the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead for this emerging technology. Generative AI is the technology behind the latest online tools that millions are using. 
Some of these AI tools can mimic human voices and answer all sorts of questions, while others can whip up lifelike photos from tiny cues. As this technology spreads far and wide, it raises the question of whether we're ready for it. To help us make sense of it all, I chatted with Zichi Chen, an applied intelligence expert at Accenture Greater China. Do you think society is prepared for what's coming? It's a yes as well as a no. If we do not use it correctly, it can be quite dangerous. So that's why I think uh, regulations is important. Getting wrong answers due to what he calls the model hallucination could end up being a problem for users. And there's much more to that. In the eyes of Wilson Chow, PwC China artificial intelligence leader, there are other concerns about data and personal information safety. Because of that significant volume of data being flowed to the large model, um, that to train it um, under machine learning, there will also be data security and privacy issues. And therefore, striking a balance between getting the benefits of AI adoption and protecting the interests of the public, company and individual is always a key factor to consider. In response to all those concerns, and as an attempt to better develop generative AI, China rolls out its own version of regulations regarding the technology. Taking effect on August 15th, it specifically focuses on some of the potential hazards like inaccuracy, copyright infringement, and more fundamental aspects such as biases and societal turbulence. Going beyond than just ensuring safety, Chan thinks the rules also encourage innovation, a key factor in developing this fast-changing technology that grows by the second. Safety and innovation uh, by itself, there is no conflict meaning all good innovation must be safe. And therefore, if you look at the, the law that we have today, uh, it is a set of good principles. And so therefore, I think it will help innovation. Because at the end of the day, the most important thing for innovation to be adopted at scale is the trust in the innovation. Overall, experts are optimistic about generative AI's development in China's domestic market. From Chan's perspective, the technology is still at its infancy in China, and the country's domestic firms are playing catch-up with global leaders like San Francisco-based OpenAI, but he thinks it'll eventually be developed and mature. That was Dai Kai reporting on generative AI regulations in China. A project of China's West East gas transmission pipeline has gone into operation. The project is suspected to increase the annual transmission capacity of cobalt methane in Shanxi province by 1 billion cubic meters. Liu Jun is a senior executive with the project. He says the project can further release the cobalt methane production capacity in the Qinshui Basin in Shanxi. Through this adaptive renovation, we have further connected the number one West East gas transmission line with the gas source pipeline to improve the outbound transmission capacity. After the upgrade project is put into operation, the outward transmission capacity can reach 8.5 million cubic meters per day. The Qinshui field has an estimated cobalt methane storage of 600 billion cubic meters. The output also reduced carbon dioxide emissions by about 11.7 million tons. You're listening to the Beijing Hour coming up in sports. Alhila agrees to deal with PSG for Neymar. Sideline Story brings you all things sports related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. It's 47 minutes past the hour, turning to sports. Here is Brendan Yates. Thank you, Su Yi. And kicking off with football news, Rafael Varane's close-range header secured a 1-0 win for Manchester United despite an unconvincing performance against unfancied Wolves at Old Trafford in the early hours of Tuesday morning Beijing time. Gary O'Neill's visitors had the better of the chances before Varane's 76th-minute winner. After the game, United manager Eric Ten Hag said he wanted his side to be more aggressive going forward. When the league starts, opponents are more aggressive than we have seen from moves. They were very aggressive. I think we, uh, our skills, we could be better and in decision-making. And then when we were in the battle, we were not aggressive enough. So from that point of view, we can do a lot of things better. But also I see yeah, many positive things. There was a stoppage time penalty check when United keeper Andre Onana clattered into Sasa Kaladzic while failing to claim the ball, and the penalty was controversially not awarded, which also saw O'Neill being booked for his complaints. 
Liverpool legend Steven Gerrard got off to a good start in the Saudi Pro League as his new side Al Etifak got past Al Nasser 2-1 at home. The match had also seen former Liverpool players Sadio Mane and Jordan Henderson facing off wearing the captain's armbands on their debuts in the Middle East. Mane became the captain after Cristiano Ronaldo was out injured. He opened the scoring for last season's runners-up early at the start of the game, but goals from Robin Kwaisan and Moussa Dembele helped the hosts take the lead in the second half. Moving on to football transfer news and PSG forward Neymar has reportedly agreed to a two-year deal with Al-Hilal for around 90 million euros or over 98 million US dollars plus add-ons. Reports say the transfer will complete once the 31-year-old has done a medical and all necessary paperwork. The Brazilian is rumored to earn 160 million euros over two seasons in the Middle East. Neymar became the most expensive player ever in 2017 when PSG signed him from Barcelona for over 220 million euros. Chelsea goalkeeper Kepa Ariza Balaga has joined La Liga giants Real Madrid on loan until the end of the 2023-24 season. The Spanish goalkeeper has been brought in to cover for injured keeper Thibaut Courtois, who suffered a knee ligament tear last week and is set to miss the majority of the season's matches. 28-year-old Kepa joined the Blues from Athletic Bilbao in 2018 and has since won the UEFA Champions League, Europa League, Super Cup and FIFA Club World Cup with the English club. Romeo Lavia's alleged preference is to join Chelsea despite Liverpool agreeing a £60 million deal for the Southampton midfielder. No agreement has been made between Southampton and Chelsea for the midfielder yet, but one is reported to be close. It is believed that the total package agreed between Liverpool and Southampton is worth £60 million. Liverpool have already missed out on Moises Caicedo to Chelsea after the Brighton midfielder moved to Stamford Bridge for a British record £115 million. Liverpool had a £111 million offer accepted by Brighton, only for the 21-year-old to inform them he only intended to join Chelsea. And Chinese snooker player Xi Jiahui has continued to make his mark on the World Snooker Tour as the 21-year-old beats German contender Lukas Kleckers with a commanding 4-1 victory in the British Open's first round of qualifying. Xi had a sluggish start in Leicester surrounding his opening frame, surrendering rather. However, he swiftly found his rhythm and rallied just in time, propelling himself to advancement through a series of impressive breaks. Last April, C became the youngest World Championship quarter-finalist in over two decades. C's compatriot Ma Hai Long also qualified for the next round with a 4-2 win over lower-ranked English veteran Ian Burns. It was the 20-year-old's maiden victory in his debut season on the tour. In basketball, Philadelphia 76ers star James Harden has called his own team's president Daryl Murray a liar in a surprising attack amid ongoing trade speculation surrounding the 2018 NBA Most Valuable Player. At an event in Beijing on Monday, Harden said he would never be a part of an organization that Murray is associated with. Harden's general movements are trending in China as he is currently in the country on a promotional tour. Harden has reportedly made it clear to the 76ers that he wants to be traded this offseason following another disappointing playoff exit last season. According to multiple media reports, the 76ers have spent the majority of the offseason looking to facilitate the 33-year-old's wishes. Formula One driver Charles Leclerc has said staying with Ferrari beyond 2024 remains his top priority as he wants to win a world championship with the Italian team. The driver is in the penultimate year of a five-year deal. In April, the five-time race winner dismissed reports he was being lined up to replace Lewis Hamilton in, at Mercedes in 2024. Ferrari's recent form has added fuel to the fire. Leclerc appeared to be a title contender last year only for strategy errors and driver mistakes to see the team's challenge fall apart. Ferrari has failed to challenge the unbeaten Red Bull team so far this season. And finally, the Asian Football Confederation will revamp its continental club competitions next year with an increased prize fund and will also launch an Asian Women's Champions League. Kicking off in September 2024, the leading 24 club sides from across the continent will play in the new AFC Champions League Elite, with the winners earning 12 million US dollars. That sum is a three-fold increase in the maximum amount available to previous winners of the competition. The AFC Champions League Elite headlines a new three-tier setup and replaces the existing format in which clubs compete in either the AFC Champions League or the secondary AFC Cup. 
The three new competitions will feature a total of 76 teams from across Asia, with 32 teams also taking part in the AFC Champions League 2, while a third strand will be comprised of 20 clubs. Thanks, Brandon. Coming up in culture and entertainment, China's summer box office revenue surpasses 16 billion yuan. The Beijing Hour. Hello, I'm Peter Dinklage from X-Men Days of Future Past. You are listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi, I'm Kathy Freeman, and you're listening to The Beijing Hour. Hi, everyone. I'm Lang Lang. Welcome to The Beijing Hour. The Beijing Hour, your window to China and the world. China's movie box office revenue in this summer has surpassed 16 billion yuan, over 2.2 billion U.S. dollars. Domestic movie Lost in the Stars, Never Say Never, and Creation of the Gods took the top three spots in the summer season film market. Industry Insider predicted that the summer season box office in China is expected to surpass 18 billion yuan. At the annual Torch Festival in Liangshan, Sichuan Province, the local Yi people have hosted a beauty contest as a long-standing tradition. The festival has gradually become a grand event for young people to showcase the local language, culture, and traditional costumes. Guo Tianqi has more. The so-called traditional beauty contest must have its own unique features. For the young men and women of the Yi people, the most important thing is a healthy skin color. Traditionally, Yi males have dark skin, a big nose and eyes, and large ears. They have to be strong and muscular enough. The competition also requires the competitor to wear traditional clothes. Halajilu is wearing a 90-year-old costume, and the embroidery on it is handmade. I like Yi clothes very much. They reflect my identity, although we don't wear it very much in daily life, apart from grand activities such as the Torch Festival. Rather than a comparison of appearance, the beauty contest is more of a comprehensive ability test. They must show their e-language ability and other talents to win the support of the judges and the audience. They can write e-calligraphy, play our traditional instruments such as the yueqing and mouth harp. I'm very impressed as a young person of the e ethnic group, I should learn from them. Competitors are not just from Liangshan, Yi Autonomous Prefecture. You can tell where they are from by the clothes they wear. I just sent flowers to my sister. We came from Guizhou province. I think the beauty standards haven't changed for us. It's a good thing. These beautiful young men and women represent not only aesthetic preferences, but also inherit traditions. That was Guo Tianqi reporting from Sichuan province. Cape Town, South Africa is hosting an art exhibition titled Beauty in China ahead of the BRICS summit later this month. It's showcasing Chinese calligraphy, jasmine tea tasting, and traditional Chinese acupuncture. Amesh Bawa with the University of the Western Cape explains the importance of the exhibition. And it's really about trying to find a way to be able to bring a flavor of the cultures of China uh, to South Africa. As we know, South Africa has a long history of of Chinese uh, engagement. I think it's particularly important here in terms of this exhibition uh, that there's a taste of uh, Chinese culture, there's an appreciation of the cultural exchange and the deepening of the friendship and relationships that uh, South Africa and China have and which the University of Western Cape uh, really enjoys through its Confucius Institute uh, and the work that it does. Johannesburg will host the 15th BRICS Summit next week. The city of Dunhuang in northwest China is staging four cultural plays on the history and culture of the famed city along the ancient Silk Road. The performances integrate Dunhuang's history and its culture of clothing, music, dance. The four plays have been performed over a thousand times this year, attracting more than 600,000 tourists from home and abroad. 
Before we go, let's check the weather again. Beijing is 24 overnight. Tomorrow will be cloudy with a high of 34. Chongqing is 29 this evening. Tomorrow sunny and 37. Lhasa is 13 overnight. Tomorrow cloudy and 24. Hong Kong is 28 tonight. It will see showers tomorrow and 33. Elsewhere, Tokyo is 26 overnight. Light rain and 32 on Wednesday. Islamabad is 25 tonight. Light rain and 35 tomorrow. Bangkok is 26 overnight. Then slight rain and 34 on Wednesday. And that's it for this edition of the Beijing Hour Making News today. China marks its first Ecology Day. Argentina devalues currency following the presidential primaries. Casualties from the Hawaii wildfires are expected to rise further. On behalf of the staff, this is Sui in the Chinese capital, hoping you will join us for the next edition of the Beijing Hour and open the window to the world together. <laughs>